Um, so Mustafa, you recently came back to work um, after a five or six week bad leave. How's that working out for you? Are you pumped to be back at work or uh, did you wish you had more time off? Uh, it's a bit of both, actually. I'm, I'm very happy to be back at work. It's good. I like the work that I do. Um, the project I'm on is quite intense right now. Um, so I have a, a lot of FOMO from missing out from like what's going on with my baby. And he's like a room away. So it's it's challenging. I'm also exhausted now all the time because there's baby and then there's work. So life is good, though. It's just exhausted all the time. It's a new state of being. Yeah, so this week's episode, we're going to be focused a bit more on the technical and tactical side of bringing a feature to market. So things like um, in the product discovery process, what does the engineering team's responsibility in that look like? And how do we put together design documents for bringing this feature to market? And as part of that, um, how do we size features and um, author user stories and epics and there's also something that's new to me, um, something called an architectural decision record. And Bora and Mustafa are going to be diving deep into that. And we'll also be kind of addressing technical debt, um, the pros and cons of why this thing always comes back to bite us in the ass. And uh, yeah, so why don't we just kick things off here? Um, I think uh, like one of the first things, maybe let's just remind the people that are listening, the example that we're going to use to drive through this entire thing. So I think we'll carry the same example from part one, which was the the, the Twitch POV example. Um, and we're going to try and tie it, tie it to every single point, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see how good that goes. Um, so why don't we jump right into it? Um, as part of the discovery process last week, we, we talked about looping in the engineering team. And as part of that process, a lot of what a PM does is kind of figure out the feasibility risk, which is, hey, can we actually figure out how to build this from an engineering standpoint, right? So uh, Bora or Mustafa, why don't you kick it off and kind of um, shed some light into how a feasibility study or risk is assessed when we're bringing a feature like this to market? So, um, so to ground this discussion, I think um, I'm going to use the, uh, the the feature to like talk about how we come up with a um, you know a, a risk analysis and a technical spec for uh, for the feature. In this context, we're uh, we're going from uh, we're basically adding the ability for a user to switch between different POVs of uh, of the players in a in an in a, in, a, in an esports uh, match, specifically Overwatch League. So. Uh, in the past, uh, Twitch would stream a director's cut, which is a single stream. And beyond that, like Twitch as a platform is all about like you know streaming a single uh, player's perspective uh, from your. It could be from your bedroom playing a really bad game of Overwatch, like we do, uh, or it could be uh, it could be a, a professional player um, or a professional stream. Uh, so this is a paradigm changing feature because it's uh, it's allowing you to sort of uh, switch between multiple streams from the single from a single perspective. So. Right from the get-go, like I think um, this is this has like architectural implications as well as like um, as well as like you know uh, a real cost to building this feature. Therefore, needing a lot more risk analysis than um, than something like um, uh, just adding a new button might. Right. So um, so to start with, I think uh, the first thing is like when do we involve um, uh, like. Uh, your senior engineers or your whatever you call them, like a staff engineer, architect, or whatever you call them, 
uh, to sort of be involved in the in the design uh, phase of the uh, of the feature. Kanti, I looped them in pretty early on. So as part of the uh, well, the first step after the ideation is done is I kind of do a value assessment. Um, so once that's done, once I'm fairly comfortable and confident that uh, customers are going to find some value in this new idea, that's when I bring it to my engineering team. Um, say, hey, this is the outline of what we're planning to do. Um, and I also, if uh, possible, I kind of like to break it down as much as I can into subsets of a feature, if you will, especially if it's a large piece of work. And then, um, so as part of that discussion with the engineering team lead or the engineering team, uh, we go through like first of all, hey, is it? Can we actually build this? Um, like, do we have the bandwidth and the resources and the ability to do so? Right. So it's kind of like the um, litmus test. Then once um, I get the approval there, then we kind of sit down and figure out um, what's kind of required from an engineering perspective. So. Uh, we also kind of like to figure out who specifically on the team is best suited to work on this, um, both from a resource perspective and technical ability perspective. And then the last thing I do there is to do like a T-cert sizing um, estimate of how much effort this is going to uh, require. So typically I've used story points, and I think that's the norm in most companies and most teams. But I've also done it in a previous life uh, just based on a timeline which... Um, wasn't the best way to do it because timelines almost never stick. Um, yeah, so the yeah, so the the three things just to summarize: um, can we build this? Who do we assign this uh, new feature to build it for, uh, or build it to rather? And then last one is a t-shirt sizing estimate of okay, how much or how long is this gonna? How much effort is this gonna take for us to build? And yeah, and then I typically end it there as part of the discovery process and then let it percolate in the engineering team's um, minds while I continue on with the rest of the discovery. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating lately is like uh, is the idea of like specification by example, um, which basically basically like user uh, product is always writing user stories, right? They're writing user stories to like, you know, talk about how a user Utilizes the feature, what their uh, what their results are going to be, and like what their um, what their assumptions are, um, and like what the um, what the goal of the um, project would be. So essentially, like by by writing um, user stories and as examples, like uh, uh, like repeatable examples, you both create a path for testing, but also create create like um, a, a model through which like. Um, a technical person like or like an, uh, an engineer will be able to uh, will be able to build their feature and iterate so in this example um i really like um the uh, like being pulled in early because it it is it is a very uh, large feature and mm -hmm. it would automatically get uh, like uh, pretty much like an excel like sizing just because it's an architectural change and um yeah and around that like uh, i would say even like you know, infrastructure would be uh, uh, would be notified that such a change would be coming because uh, so you know like uh, Mustafa, I mean like changing from a single stream to a multi-stream and then being able to switch between them is probably also like a 
at a scale of Twitch and stuff, it's probably also an interesting scalability challenge. Yeah, I can imagine like they're multiplying the amount of uh, network bandwidth and stuff like that, right? So, um, so that would be a lot. And it, it's it's a bit interesting because you use the word infrastructure, and a lot of companies do have a, a team that's dedicated to infrastructure that's a little bit split away from DevOps, right? So, I find that like DevOps is a little bit of an overarching term in a lot of cases. Um, but still within DevOps, you still have like network experts, infrastructure experts, release experts, right? Um, or like even testing experts on the side. Um, yeah, so before we even start, like you said, there's generally a t-shirt sizing. You know, we just know that this is a large uh, item. And then if we needed to invest in it, it would need like some, some resources and some time, right? Like we kind of know that mm-hmm. we also we also kind of know that like we want to deliver it quickly. So like we want to take we want to get to an MVP that's like smaller. So you would iterate on uh, before you even start coding and before the technical design starts, we would really iterate on the must have features to get it down to a to a sort of to a place where like I think uh, it serves a purpose, but you know isn't like the best version of what we want because that can be achieved later down the stream. Like I always look at the Apple products as a way of like okay the Apple products are pretty perfect from the day one, but they have like certain <laughs> certain issues when they first come out, so you should always buy Gen two and Gen three. But the same thing applies to software, but in a much much crazier sense because I feel like the first version of a software product is always pretty bad, and it takes a lot of revisions before it gets there. So it's better to get it out than to keep it uh, keep iterating on it in house because you actually don't know how it's going to be used. So the old saying in product is: if you're not embarrassed by the first product you shipped, you've shipped too late. Exactly. I think the only only company that that like sort of like goes against that is like Apple. I feel like they release it internally or something. There must be some process they have. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're pretty fucking good products. Yeah, they only have like five or six products. Like they, they like they like they just iterate on all the time. But like it's but each of them when they add a new one is so crazy. Anyway, uh, Mustafa, you want to talk about like how um, you would start maybe a technical uh, design session with with product. Well, generally, all the engineers would go in a room and say everything they want. <laughs> That's my experience in the past, where like it, this becomes an opportunity <laughs> to change everything. <laughs> Let's just overhaul the entire system from the bottom up um, because there's an opportunity here. But obviously, that doesn't work, right? So you kind of have to like scale everything back down to between and split things between what you want and what you really need to release an MVP that's like cluster clear. What I have been burnt for in the past is like, oh, let's overhaul our CI CD system to release this new feature. Like don't tie different projects or different um together because like if one project is slow then then you're jeopardizing that bigger business project um from being delivered on time, right? Um so yes yeah it's interesting because you're right because sometimes we inadvertently add critical dependencies that are, that are feature, not needed right, right? like like sure yeah. your ci cd pipeline is slow okay like i can accept that i'll be the first one to say it. it's always slow that's fine right um yeah but like don't don't take this as an opportunity to like rehaul your entire ci cd pipeline from the bottom up like with a new build system because it's just it becomes like a whole other project, and the focus shifts from where the focus actually needs to be. Um, and the focus, I, I, I always like for me, the focus should always be on uh, the product that's gonna bring in revenue because that will enable you later to to fix the internals of your system, right? Um, yeah, and we're kind of jumping into technical debt 
right now. Um, yeah. But yeah, a hundred percent, I agree. And even more than that, like I actually really like the fact that you brought up like all the engineers get into a room and uh, and talk about uh, the things that they want to improve. This is like honestly, uh, the happens all the time when you every when you single meeting. Yeah, like, that's why you don't have a meeting with everybody. <laughs> it is uh, it is the reality of like how things actually have to be built. Because but that's, we, I think that's uh, it's just an, our nature instinct as uh, as engineers, right? Like we just want to fix things, right? Like it's and, actually like always a pull, push and pull between um, between what engineering wants to do, which is like you know, like um, there's a few things that like drive engineers, right? Let's be completely honest about certain things. One is like obviously cleaning up, like it's like OCD about cleaning up, like what you have and uh, cleaning up shop. Like sometimes you know your room is dirty and you want to like you know make sure that it's clean. So like in the same way, like code, you see code is dirty, you want to clean it. And you want to, you see inefficiencies in your process, you want to clean that. Yeah. Um, and then when you see a large scale new feature that's building on top of like things that are like a little bit not clean, dirty. and that's always what technical debt really is, um, you always recoil and say like, oh, we got to clean up first, right? But then business doesn't always have to, can't, can't always wait for you, right? Um, well, that's, I think to, to me, like from my career, like a difference between a good company and a bad company is a good company gives you time to clean up your internals, right? Like to clean up your room. It gives you the opportunity to do that every now and then. A bad company just continuously builds garbage on top of garbage on top of garbage. And then when a a pivotal moment will come, when you do want to release this big new feature and everything falls apart and you have to start from the beginning. Yeah, um, and that's a that's a that's a good technical debt discussion. But I I do want to add one more thing is that like I think you uh, you hit the nail right on the head on the fact that like a company gives you time. But how is that time like actually factored in? Uh, a good company is also looking at the roadmap and looking at your technical debt as item product items that you need to as solve. product exactly. That's like, exactly it. like it is still like like a business product item to me is no different than. We need to change the database underlining our system because we need more throughput or something like that. Like that's still a product initiative, right? Um, and it should be seen as such. Like I think that's why like a lot of companies are moving towards product teams versus like product and engineering teams separately. Uh, the idea of like um, we're all working on the same sort of um, we're all working on the same thing and and being able to manage those products uh, and know, knowing how our product is shaping up is still a, definitely like a um, it's 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 a cross team responsibility. Like technical debt is like something that we all have to like work with. The hip term Bora is squads right now. Get with the times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pods, squads, all of these pods. Things. Yeah, we yeah, yeah pods, squads. Slalom is all about the pods. Yeah. Beyond <laughs> that, like okay, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about like the technical debt that you can incur in this specific project, right? So like. I think, like I already mentioned, the fact that they're using muxing, like uh, they're using the same like single streaming feature for multi-streaming, which uh, which ends up causing um, and, like desynchronization issues and things like that. But also like just code reuse in like really weird ways. But is that justified um, specifically for this feature? What do you guys think? I would say so because if if I we're following so. that same principle of. Uh, get something out the door as quickly as possible that achieves that underlying goal right but like if you are um, a try hard broadcaster um, if you open the director's cut and the pov cut and if the pov is late by like half a minute which is this is like in if you're streaming stuff online things are a little bit out of sync um 
but like to a broadcaster, this is like a non-negotiable. Everything has to be in sync. You have to be seeing things frame synchronized and like things like that. But like, I think if we tie this to like, but this is from a software standpoint, from a software company following like software best practices, just get something out the door to see if people are even interested in seeing a POV, right? I actually really like the idea that you brought up the broadcaster because the broadcaster systems are completely different from Twitch's, right? They're using uh, the, the Overwatch, uh, like, uh, like, you know, the client itself. And then they're able to like create these multiple streams. The user doesn't really need to be able to see the stream exactly 100%. Because if they switch between streams, a couple of seconds is like, it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. And like the, the, like also like you're looking at your user base, right? Like your, your user base here are people watching on phone, iPad, second laptop, you know, like the screen in your TV. But like you're not, like, yes, you are watching, but it's not the same um, way like somebody would watch. Uh, a soccer game, I would say. Like, yeah, I think I think and, it's a little different, right? And and maybe that, yeah. Another really good point you brought up is how multi-platform uh, this uh, this feature really is. This feature might be simple enough to build on a web a platform where, like, you know, you can you can you can iterate faster. But getting the same feature onto all of your mobile apps, then getting it onto Chromecast, and then getting it onto your TVs, and then getting it onto PC, PS4, it seems challenging. So. So I don't know if they've rolled it out across all of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they only rolled it out to a couple of platforms to start with. Yeah. Um, and and like I can, I can definitely see like the sync issue being a very complex problem because like, like if you are Chromecasting one stream, the director's cut, and then like on your laptop you want to watch the POV stream, like I genuinely have no idea how Twitch would know that that's the same person watching both and those two things need to be in sync. And I yeah. feel like the the complexity there is unnecessary to doing something in it like a in an MVP. Yep. And so like uh, and so we begin like a technical design document. So we realize that we don't. Uh, while all those things are like nice to haves, we want to get this market to uh, yeah. uh, the feature to market fast. So like let's yeah. work with what we have. So the first thing is always to look at component review, knowing like like what we have already and what what works. And in, I mean, you do this implicitly in most companies because you're always working with the same tool set. But, uh, but generally, you like over, you look at like all the component pieces you have, and like what, what, what is the change set that you need to get this feature out in a way that doesn't like you know is not like you know ifs and buts and uh, a, a whole lot of like uh, uh, addition like like you know crappy code and, to like get it to work. Um, and like, I, I guess like I just want to highlight like we're not saying like when when all the engineers are in the room and they're like saying their concerns like to to like just say ignore that like identify that specifically and like write down your risks because you might as you're progressing through your MVP mitigate those risks and as I, I find it like when we do when we do discovery like my favorite part is identifying risks <laughs> just. Not from a, you can't do that, but more like, we just need to be more careful about doing that. And so that's, uh, for yeah. me, like, I, I, I like the, the risk part quite a lot. It's just, um, it, yeah. That's a good point. Like, um, so generally, like, when an engineer is bringing up all of these different, um, different points, like, they are risks. And it is good to, like, make a note of them. And then eventually those could become feature epics of their own. Yeah, and and uh, like I think sometimes like in, again like in the past like risks have just been ignored as when you do say a concern like you don't need to worry about that but like there's there's no harm in just writing it down because like from a human side like you've showed that you've listened 
And then in the future, if it does happen, you have a record of it. It did happen. And now you just have to work to kind of mitigate it. And that's where, like, um, I I have been a big fan of this uh, particular dis- uh, uh, design document paradigm, which is um, an architectural decision record. Um, it's it's something that I kind of, like, it's not like a commonly used template, but, like, there's a, quite a few, like, uh, thought articles written about it already. But I like, really enjoy it to be able to create like a commit history essentially of all the decisions you make to make uh, to get features to market and as well change your uh, modernize your application stack. So yeah, um, when you explained it to me I was like, okay, cool, that's that's a that's git for architecture. <laughs> and yeah. like you, you essentially like yeah, like the way you explained it I was just like that's the I'm I'm only saying that so like other people will relate because it's it's you you yeah, and we can we're, we're going to link a sample in our show notes too if uh, people are interested in checking out yeah. what a ADR looks like. Yeah, and then in this case, like you know, we we always have a technical specification that we're going to write for specifically the design, so all the pieces that we need across all the components, and then make sure everything fits in. But the decision records are just high level like de- uh, decisions that we've made. So things like okay, we're not we're going to be using the same uh, single stream feature in this case, like you know, like um, and then we're just going to be able to like when you click up, we're going to add a layer. Of buttons on top of these videos that like uh, switch between streams implicitly in the background, so you don't actually realize that you're not watching. Um, you're not seeing multiple streams and not being able to like quickly switch between them. You're actually just switching between different Twitch streams that are hidden behind the background. So like that would be a decision record that you would write down. Another decision record here could be like you know how do you name like uh, like the like the naming conventions of like of these like uh, of these like fake streams that are part of the bigger stream. How do you? What is the relationship patterns uh, that, like the relationship between these streams? Like, how do you how do you know that something belongs to some other stream and not not this stream? And those are like more implicit, but but like those are the kinds of like decision records you might write. Um, what about uh, like let's say if we have to update the the schema of our database, would that kind of decision go in there as well? Uh, not necessarily, because schema updates happen so often that like uh, I mean I just mentioned that that was one of the things that I would. Put in a decision record, but I wouldn't generally. I would generally just like okay. it's more higher level. It, it's like it's like things like this, like the single stream one, is a really good architectural decision record, right? Like another decision gotcha. record could be uh, we are switching out this library of uh, to do our our chat service from Firebase to you know something else because you know it's giving us the ability to mux all of the uh, all of the chat, right? Like that could be a decision that they 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 make. Uh, and then there's obviously costs associated to that decision, and then. Uh, and then those those are captured in like the work you do against those decision records and the epics that you do. But yeah, um, that's how like what, okay. what an arch- architecture decision record is. Uh, I'm a fan of that just to like sort of like situate a company's like growth in, technically and all the decisions that they've made to get to a certain um, place. I think Git commits are very good to see like individually in a code base like where the where things have changed, how often things change in certain areas, like. What were the, what was the specific change that caused this to happen? But an architecture decision record is like what was the thought behind those changes? Who, why, why was this thought? Why was this decision made? And what was the kind of like, uh, what was the what was the impetus behind that decision? Um, outside of that, like now that we have a design document, those are super important. We should talk a little bit about that a bit more. I mean, product comes in with like you know feature specifications. They come up with a product specification. We look at that and we convert that into actual components that need to be built, and those need to have a design documents as well. Um, personally, I don't know, Mustafa, what do you think about uh, design? I I'm a huge fan of design documents, um, 
and the more detailed they are, the the more I like them. Um, but that's just my my take on it. Um, and I think, <clears throat> like out of discovery, you should as well have a kill your darlings exercise, because. <laughs> um, I think what you'll end up with is a sometimes a bloated design document, and you kind of have to like review it back and go like, okay, well, we this we can't do this, we can't do this, this we don't need this, we don't need this, right? So, um, just to kind of like bring things back to what the MVP is actually about versus uh, what we talked about, like the kind of engineers engineers natural way of um, wanting to fix everything. Like you want to put enough detail in the design document to give you what we talked about, like the North Star and like that guidance towards the MVP. But at the same time, like like you're a few steps behind writing code into your design document, right? So it's it's I've seen design documents that are that have had code bits in them. Don't do that. Um, I've, my like design documents were it's architectural guidance. Um, the business purpose and details like that are are very helpful because they will help you in the next step, which is um, kind of building out your sprints and building out your backlog to kind of um, go forward, right? Because like the design document is what gives you that next step, um, and kind of like the same way with like ETLs, right? Like if it's garbage in, it's garbage out. If your design document is garbage, you're gonna have a garbage product. And this brings us to our next. Uh, uh... A step in all of this, which is um, now that we have a design document and we have a general idea of what the process, the, the work is going to look like, because we have it broken down by component, like by by component being like both like you know the elements that make up the design, but also like you know uh, the different platforms that this design is going to go to. Specifically, in this case, it's going on to all of the mobile platforms and the web. So um, so now that we have all of that. We need to work across our different pods, uh, just to bring that word back. Um, and and every pod is has their own like work backlog, generally, um, and they're generally working on a, a biweekly or some sort of cadence. At which point, like their priorities are reevaluated, and then the work they're doing is situated in the broader sort of roadmap of the company. So this that's, is where that's assuming yeah. they're doing sprints, not Kanban, but. Either way, I, I think uh, I think in general, like if you're talking about technical specs and design documents and things like that, Kanban's are not necessarily like. No, no. I was just um, <laughs> for the people that are doing Kanban out there. I didn't want us to omit them. There are those teams do exist. I was yeah, on one of sure. those teams. <laughs> um, I'll keep my feelings secret about how I feel about Kanban. <laughs> I think when you say you want to keep something secret, yeah. it's not secret anymore. <laughs> but... You just expressed your feelings about Kanban by saying that. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's, let's bring this back. Let's bring this back, right? So um, we have our design document thingy, um, and now we're doing the backlog, right? Yeah. So generally, like teams have backlog grooming. They have like prioritization, like sprint so, prioritization um, rituals. From your experience, um, who participates in like dishing out the backlog? I'm not talking about sprint planning, and I'm not talking about sizing. I just mean. Um, Physically writing the backlog tickets in Jira or whichever software you use. Interesting. So generally, it's been uh, well. I've been working at like medium, like smaller size companies. So like you know, it's generally like the lead, uh, um, like the software lead or like the and uh, alongside the product person writing the different uh, okay. tickets together. Yeah, that's the same. That's the same as my experience. It's usually like the lead architect alongside um, the the product manager. 
Yeah, and bigger companies have a PO role too, right? So sometimes it's a product owner who's in charge of writing the tickets and the stories. And in at this point, are the stories uh, like epic stories? And um, are they how much detail are we talking about here? Um, generally, like uh, it depends. Like uh, if you have a very very like uh, like depends on what your company uh, prefers, right? You can have to tickets with all the details in them or you could just link to a design document that you're reviewing and the specific sections that you're looking at uh, to see a broader whole. I personally like do prefer like a design document that has everything because uh, it's like it situates uh, the, the, the and then a design document that obviously links to other design documents if it's like a multi-platform feature. Um, it just like creates like a, a holistic understanding of things but the tickets should also describe specifically what part of that um, design document is uh, is it like you know referring to and like and like in a short blur be able to like you know describe it? So uh, it's a, it's a combination. Like it depends on like the work. Like if it's if it's a smaller bit of work, like it's just bug or something, the ticket should have a lot of information. If it's part of a bigger design, should the ticket ticket should have some information, but linking back to the overarching design document that we spent so much time on. Right. So like I guess so what I'm trying to say, um, I'm trying to ask is like this is something I've struggled in the past with. Is like like for example. Let's say part of this is you need to spin up six EC2 instances or six virtual machines, whatever. Um, is the entire detail of that spec is create six machines um, and then link it back to the document where the document will give you the right sizing, uh, what network they need to be on, who needs to access the stuff, um, that level of detail, or um, like I, I know in, in development is very different, right? But like if you correlate that into development, like are you talking about how to implement uh, a specific feature or do you leave that generally to your developer or it depends leave, on the developer? <laughs> I leave that generally to the developer. Like if you had to like depend on the particular developer, you probably should reevaluate like how you're building the team. <laughs> but, uh, but like uh, yeah. but just talking specifically about, um, about this, like, yeah, it's, you leave the building of the feature, like how to build it and write it, like not from an architecture perspective, but like from the just general like hand to code, like you know making changes to like the developer, and just link it to back to the overarching like architectural design document. And I guess um, you handle like because like some sort of review needs to happen at a certain point, right? So like I guess like you can do, you can say this is what we want you to do, do it however you want, and then you'll do a code review. And then if it if the implementation needs to be adjusted, it will be taken care of during the code review. Um, exactly. As opposed to uh, dictator Bora saying, you need to do this exactly this way. Any way other than that is wrong. No, absolutely. And sometimes like uh, design documents are living documents. They do get changed uh, based on like some new thing that like a developer might, might be able to do it more efficiently or did it in a different way. Um, that obviously is accounted for and, and, and the space is given to be able to explore within the architectural framework. So again, like we, we want to go back to that talk talk about the design document being less implementation specific and more um more like higher level, like just level higher, which is component specific and trying to understand like how we modularize things and think of things in like as blocks. Those blocks like and how they interact should be in the design document. This how the block is written is really up to the developer. So let's go to like how a feature uh now after it's been written and has been like you know tested and confirmed, how do you release it and like and like and what is the process behind that? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, I think Mustafa, this is your expertise or part of your expertise, right? Because um, yeah, as a PM, like I almost always have no say or control over the actual deployment. Actually, I would say you would, you would, because you, um, uh, you would be able to. You, you're the one deciding like what the rollout strategy is going to be. You're deciding. Generally, feature flagging is a big part of like modern post office stacks. So you're deciding how you're rolling out that feature uh, to different people. What percentage of users get to see it? Is there a beta testing phase um, and things like that? Yeah. So once you're done your testing, obviously the next part is to figure out the rollout strategy, right? So maybe tying it back to our Twitch example, um, usually when you are testing out a new feature or shipping it for the first time, you don't roll it out to your entire customer base or user base. Um, typically what happens is you segment out your user base and pick a subset of that segment to roll out the feature to, to do your testing and run your experiments and collect the data and uh, measure how it's performing. And if it's uh, performing well or performing according to your hypothesis that we talked about last uh, episode, then the decision can then be made out or made to roll it out to a larger subset of the population or that entire population of your user base. So really the rollout strategy differs based on the feature we're bringing to market. Um, but in this Twitch example, um, I know one guess I would make is maybe they decided to roll out to viewers who watched Overwatch streams mainly, um, because obviously Twitch has a lot of viewers and a lot of viewers watching different things on their platform. So the obvious um, kind of assumption I can make here is maybe when they were building and rolling out this multi-POV feature, they decided to roll it out for or two people who actually watched or uh, paid Overwatch. customers, right? Like they might have offered it as a beta to paid customers. Yeah, in this in this case, too, like it's part of like right. a let's just reframe it for a second because it's uh, it's it's part of a single stream already. It's part of the Overwatch League stream, so it's people who watch Overwatch League that gets to see it. But that's the entire customer base. What happens is like I would say that a percentage of that uh, people have saw the features coming online first, and then the other people have to wait. They're like not given the opportunity to try it. So generally, a rollout strategy goes like, okay, 10% of Overwatch League viewers are getting um, are getting to see this for now, and then we catch our our bugs and like we we did our beta, beta testing already, by the way, like you know, or at least did some acceptance testing yeah. beforehand. So now it's just like, okay, how does it perform mm-hmm. in the wild with like with with uh, with everybody using it? At that point, like a few days is spent like looking at the metrics and seeing how it's stressing our our infrastructure and like you know looking at all of our uh, traceability metrics and things like that. So something like Mustafa, you can talk yeah. about. Yeah, well, I was I was about to like take this back a little bit because um, like a feature of this size is this is where if you have a proper development environment, proper staging environment, proper production environment, like split and they they have their cadence between them. This is where because like a major feature like this, like you can expect there might be new tools that are being added. Um, uh, there there might be database changes. There there definitely will be <laughs> changes. But I just I can I can imagine a feature like this hitting every component in your infrastructure, um, all the way up, right? So, um, this is where like if you did the prep work in staging and you're seeing everything working fine in staging, then you're, like you do the partial rollout into production, right? Where only a certain amount of users have access because like the last thing you want is to roll out a change that like deprecates your entire system or your entire service right um and something of this size could have an impact that big and this is where like when we're talking about um 
very earlier on, we're talking about risks. This is something that like, I would imagine an infrastructure engineer would point out as a risk in the design document. Um, and, and, yeah, and, and it would be rolled out into like testing and it, to mitigate that risk, right? So. Yeah, exactly. And then you would, you, would, you would actually add feature flagging. And these are, like, these are tools that we use that like, allow us to like, you know, yeah. uh, roll out strategies and like deployment flags and things like that that allow us to like, you know, roll it out. And, yeah, um, and like you might have, um, and again, like this is tying it back to technical debt. Like there might be version dependencies that, that will screw you over that you won't know about until you hit staging. But it's, it's very important. And again, it, again, we're talking about like a very varying scale of business here, right? Like if it's a startup, um, you might not have the funds to have a dev staging production uh, versus like you're a corporate enterprise. Um, but even I've seen enterprises that have no staging. Um, it's just the value of staging at this moment is cannot be, I can't say it, stress it anymore, right? Like that's that's where if that's where you'll know from a technical point of view if your feature is going to work. Like ignore the user, ignore the business, but like from an engineering standpoint, is what you built does it work? And finally, yeah, this is where the fun part starts. So like you know, Gandhi would be sitting in in behind like some, you know, like wearing glasses and behind like five hundred monitors, looking at all this, uh, all all the different streaming, you know, like um, uh, metrics coming in, you know, like looking at knobs, turning it around, or you know, just like looking at Tableau or something. <laughs> yeah, I love looking at knobs. Turning <laughs> 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 knobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. So once we actually figure out um, who and when to roll this thing out to, um, that's when you start tracking the metrics and uh, collecting the data and tracking performance. And then you're constantly uh, thinking of, okay, what's the next iteration look like? What's not working? What is yeah. working? And then already planning for that next improvement on your MVP that's been yeah. deployed. And there's probably like bugs that you and didn't catch because obviously in scale, yeah. you're looking at like maybe thousands of hundreds of thousands of people using it now. So you see, you catch things that are like you know 0.1% or 0.01% incidence rates. At which point, like those mm -hmm. things get you know brought into the pipeline if they're like show-stopping bugs or like sever high severity bugs or like, or like you know things like that. Um, uh, they then get prioritized and then worked on. And then this is where like the tickets obviously are different. And the way we, we approach them is different. You don't need a design document for a bug, for example. So um, yeah. at this point, like, do you shift the team from... Because like, you finished the MVP, essentially, right? Like you, and you've delivered it and released it. Does the team mentality now shift from uh, we are building something new to we are maintaining it? Or is, are the bugs that are coming in might shift your entire architecture at this point still um no like how I mean, married are you to the architecture that you've built you're married to the architecture for a while i mean if you aren't then you then then i'm i'm, I'm like super surprised at how you can do that like i think people are always working in ways to like in larger companies especially to like be able to not be tied to the architecture this is why like you know microservices and stuff exist in larger corporations but but uh but as it stands like you can't really like change the way you do it until unless you put a re-engineering effort, which is like another month of work, right? So what now it's just maintenance mode for that feature. And then the teams actually go on to build new features, right? And then these kinds of issues, like they get reprioritized and re-put into the sprint. If it's a if it's a showstopper, it gets like, you know, a hot fix and uh, and somebody gets working on it immediately. 
but it doesn't have to be the same lead engineers and stuff. It just it just goes back into the same process of maintenance, which is like I think I'd say like 60, 50, 40 to fifty percent of like uh, many of uh, developers' time. And uh, so, like at this point, like um, again, like we said, you delivered your MVP, and now we're into the release cadence, right? And with bug fixes, um, I've worked in two environments where releases are done. Like let's say every Tuesday is a release day. Every every Tuesday is a release day. If somebody can fit something into a Tuesday, they can. If they miss that date, it's next Tuesday. Um, I've also worked where it's released whenever a developer has done is done a feature. Um, I prefer release Tuesdays <laughs> um, because I work in ops generally, and I I, I like the predictability of that uh, versus the uh, it's Friday at six o'clock and a developer has pushed something into production. So I think we uh, developers obviously prefer the latter, but I think I think there's ways to mitigate both, uh, right? Like I think release trains, like the uh, Tuesday every, every Tuesday we release, works much better in a smaller org, especially if they don't have CI/CD and they don't have automation covering all the regression and things like that. Um, so the other option is to obviously like every time something uh, a new code base is merged to master, it goes out to all your production environments automatically. Um, and that's like that's where you want to go to ideally. It helps for it. It helps both ops and uh, dev. Um, but obviously, like that takes time to build, and not everybody has the luxury of getting there. Um, yeah, and I, I think that goes back ties back to our point of like even internal pro- projects look at them as products of their own, um, and try and invest time because like the more you invest, like if you invest internally as much as you would invest into a new feature, kind of a thing. Um, future problems become non-problems, right? And and you build a, a system that's that developers and ops have bought confidence in. And I think like my experience has shown that like if developers don't have confidence in the CI/CD pipeline, it's a it's not a it's not a very positive environment to be in because um, I think the last thing a developer wants to worry about is like uh, the CI/CD pipeline. And also, like you know, a good point there is um, is I think you should stay on a release train, like until you're uh, until the point where you can you're ready to roll out like continuous delivery or continuous deployment, even if it's um, a feature based thing. But like the most important thing there is testing and 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 risk mitigation. Like a lot of companies don't have to worry about that too much because they're like you know B two C or something. But like working in the healthcare space and stuff, like you know, you need to cover your bases and regression is a big part of it. Just like. Compliance requirements and things like that that come into play as well. As of word, um, I guess it, it, this also differs really from product to product to company to company. But um, the one thing we kind of glossed over is post-launch. It's not always a guarantee that we decide to keep that feature yeah, out in the market because after we launch the MVP, we might realize, hey, this is completely not working at all for whatever reason, and we might have to make the decision to kill. Your darling, the entire right? darling here, <laughs> and I guess um, like without putting too much detail into it, like like that should be um, because like from a technical standpoint, I can imagine yeah. that being a nightmare, right? Like undoing everything that you just put into production. Um, yeah, exactly, and that's also a big reason why initial rollouts are made small, typically, right? So ten percent of your Overwatch stream population in this case. 
Ideally, though, like you know, those those technical changes you've made, the architecture decisions you made, they don't they usually stay. And a lot of the times, like you know, they they serve future projects and things like that. If you're building your engineering team in the right direction, you'd want um, you'd want like I'd say some parts of it, a lot of the parts to be like reusable. So even if the feature gets killed in the future, like somebody else, mm-hmm. you can imagine so many different other features being built on top of the same framework. Yeah. I just imagine like if you've signed a contract with a third party to deliver your content or something like that, and it's a two-year contract. So like, how do you, how do you come back from that? Right. Like, yeah. it's just, there's I mean, complexities and it depends on the feature and right. Like, like, um, killing, killing the darling isn't always straightforward and, and it's very complex. Um, okay. Yeah. Which, which um, darlings have you killed So today? what's the masala for this episode? I think. Yeah, murder is messy, and also don't invite your engineers to <laughs> your design document meetings. Actually, you do design, invite your engineers to the final design document, like design document reviews for sure. Like once you start the process, it's like all, all engineers. Uh, don't do it in the beginning, like the the product product and engineering meeting. First one should be with your lead engineers to yeah. begin with. I always so the direction to come with. Yeah, I always call that process herding the cats because um, that's that's what it feels like when you have a room full of engineers. Um, <laughs> herding the cats? Yeah. I yeah, never said that uh, one. <laughs> yeah, it can get messy very quick. Um, but it's fun. I, I think they're, they're, they're generally fun meetings to have. Yeah, super fun. That's, that's the as... best part of like work. It's the, yeah. uh, it's the actual... Uh... Like there's a lot of creativity that comes out of them in a lot of cases. Um, and it's just it's about creating like that space that's everybody can contribute to, even though like you might not do everything. So just keep that in mind. 